This episode of The Sweaty Penguin is brought to you by Arizona, Georgia, Nevada, North Carolina, and Pennsylvania. Do you like suspenseful election nights where you have to wait several days for the result? Try Arizona, Georgia, Nevada, North Carolina, and Pennsylvania today. Welcome to episode 24 of the Sweaty Penguin, Antarctica's hottest podcast. I'm your host, Ethan Brown. Today we're talking about certifications, the thing Cardi B and Megan Thee Stallion give you when you're a freak seven days a week. There are a lot of certifications out there, from certified dog psychologist to certified Pokemon professor to this very important program. Do you want to become a certified beer judge? This is Andrew with Running on Beer. I am not a judge yet. I haven't passed the entrance exam. And that's the first step. I am working with a group from my homebrew club to pass the tasting exam and to prepare for the tasting exam right now, of course. And you have to pass the entrance exam first. First off, Andrew, you probably didn't pass the exam because every time you cram the night before, you remember that studying is drinking beer and you get hammered and wake up with a blinding hangover. But more importantly, why is it this important to society to have certified people tell you what beer tastes good? There's a much easier way to do this. It's called taste the beer yourself. And I get that it's helpful to have some recommendations when you're picking which beer to buy, but it's a whole other thing to have an organization that certifies people to put numerical scores on beers as if there's any kind of objectivity to the taste of a beverage. The only objective truths about beverage taste are that Coke is better than Pepsi, V8 juice is stupid, and Nesquik getting rid of banana milk is the most disgraceful thing to ever happen in the history of humankind. Everything else is subjective. But we're not talking about certifications for bored people between jobs who are looking for their calling today. Instead, we'll be talking about certifications for consumer products, specifically organic and fair trade certifications. Certified organic. It's the label to look for when you're spending extra money on produce. Fair prices, decent working conditions, and sustainable farming. That's the promise that fair trade offers when purchasing their products. Yeah, numbers from the Organic Trade Association show that 81% of American families are now buying organic food. But is everything marked organic at the grocery store what it really claims to be? There are lots of certifications offered for products that we buy and sell every single day, granted by lots of different groups. And on the surface, that sounds great. Consumers can get quick information on where their products came from before choosing to buy them, and producers can gain an edge over their competitors by demonstrating environmentally and socially responsible practices. But as great as the concept sounds, certification programs actually face some problems, from the criteria used to issue the certification, to the challenges producers face when they try to obtain them, to the fact that there are now more certification programs than there are Borat-themed Halloween costumes, and most consumers don't actually know what any of them mean. So today, we'll discuss what these certifications are, how they work, and if they're really achieving the impact that they claim they are. First, let's examine exactly what these certifications are. Certifications are an important way for third-party organizations to independently verify the environmental or sustainability claims a company makes. 
This means that on our end, we can rest assured that we're really doing our best to live our most sustainable lives in everything from the clothes we wear, to the food we eat, to the products we purchase, to the buildings we live in. Certifications exist to tell consumers that a company is living up to a certain set of environmental and or ethical standards in their production. There are basically two types of certifications. Third-party certifications, like the ones mentioned in the video, which are created and evaluated by an independent third party, and certifications that companies create in-house to evaluate their own products. And as helpful as that sounds, much like Dorothy's journey in The Wizard of Oz being an allegory for the gold standard, what seems like a simple story actually has a lot more underneath the surface. Each certification scheme faces complex issues, and there are broader issues facing the concept of certifications in general. First, let's talk about organic certifications. Organic certifications are really common, and you probably see them everywhere. The U.S. Department of Agriculture oversees the organic program, including the criteria for a farm to become certified organic, which are as follows. The National Organic Program does not allow synthetic pesticides. Synthetic fertilizers are not allowed under organic standards. The National Organic Program does not allow synthetic growth hormones in livestock. Under National Organic Program regulations, livestock are not allowed to be raised with antibiotics. The National Organic Program does not allow food irradiation. GMO or genetically modified organisms are not allowed on any seed used in organic production. The USDA created that list of standards, and they are also in charge of editing the standards and accrediting the agents that inspect farms and give out organic certifications. So it's clear that the USDA organic certification aims to be an indicator to consumers that the product they are buying was farmed safely and sustainably. But does the organic label actually live up to this promise? Well, it's complicated. For one, there are some misconceptions surrounding the organic label, as chemist Will Sumner explains. By definition, organic does not mean chemical-free. It just means that they're grown without the use of synthetic pesticides and fertilizers. That doesn't mean that they're not toxic. It's true. As we discussed back in episode 2 on lawn pesticides, organic and toxic are not necessarily opposites. The real definition of organic is anything derived from living matter, so plenty of things can be both. E. coli is both organic and toxic. My middle school classmate who doused my bed in bug spray on a field trip so I had to sleep on the floor for the week is both organic and toxic. And the USDA has made a few exceptions to ban some toxic organic pesticides and allow some safe synthetic pesticides, but organic produce can be farmed with toxic pesticides and fertilizers, and often is. While the USDA never claimed that organics were non-toxic or pesticide-free, consumers often think that they are, and that misconception could not only be potentially damaging to consumers' health and the environment, but kind of defeats the whole purpose of the certification, which is to inform consumers on the products they buy. USDA-approved pesticides and fertilizers are likely safer than other ones for the most part, but it's still important for consumers to know organic doesn't automatically mean non-toxic, and certainly doesn't mean pesticide-free, nor should it unless you want beetles in your salad. Another issue with the organic certification comes into play with the import of international produce. From 2011 to 2016, the U.S. imported organic products from 111 different countries according to the Organic Trade Association, and these imports make up a significant amount of the organics we buy and sell. 
The USDA requires that these products be certified by USDA standards by an accredited agency in their country of origin or under an authorized international standard, but unfortunately, that doesn't always happen. There have been cases uncovered in the past of fraudulently labeled organic products entering the U.S. markets, and while the extent of this fraud is unknown and likely not too widespread, it may be an area for concern. It's also really hard for farmers to get certified and recertified, leading many to forego the process or leave the program after having been certified, even though their practices haven't changed. Certification agencies set their own rates and fees, so the costs of certification are unequal for farmers across the country. Farmers also often have to pay for ongoing inspection costs and renewal fees to retain their organic certification. For many farmers, that can not only be an added cost, but a financial impossibility, meaning a program intended to make products more profitable by giving consumers helpful and positive information could be making them less profitable. As a result, organic farming is less of an aspiration for all farmers and more of an elite exclusive club, much like the kind of club that frats try to create with their parties. Oh, you're an organic farmer? Take a shot of Raid, name three approved organic fertilizers, and promise not to call an ambulance no matter how much Roundup your friend drank because Chad already got suspended and we are not letting him get caught again for hosting. There's also an issue with cost on the consumer end, or as this YouTuber so eloquently puts it, Why the f*** is produce let alone organic produce, so goddamn expensive. Guy on YouTube trying way too hard to sound like Lizzo has a point. Organic produce is really expensive. Since the organic label increases the cost of production in large part due to the cost of becoming certified, not only are producers avoiding it, but consumers are avoiding it too. At this rate, organic certifications are boxing people out more than Claire Crawley is boxing out all men that aren't Dale on group dates. Seriously, if you like Dale so much, stop wasting all the other guy's time and just leave. Wait, no, I didn't mean leave after four episodes, Claire. You're supposed to be entertaining us, not actually looking for a husband. Next, let's take a look at fair trade certifications. Fair trade provides producers and local communities with social, economic, and environmental benefits. It offers producers a structure that allows them to use their resources wisely and maximize their income. The fair trade certification guarantees price stability even when market prices fluctuate. This guarantee enables the producers to cover their average production costs. In order to be fair trade certified, the coffee producer has to get audited just like the rest of the supply chain. Fair trade certifications ensure that products produced internationally, especially food products such as coffee and chocolate, meet social and environmental standards set by a non-governmental organization called FlowCert which is kind of disappointing because FlowCert works so much better as the name for a tampon company. FlowCert does a number of things, from operating the certification system, to accrediting independent auditors, to producing amazing videos like this. What if people everywhere in the world worked under fair conditions? What if fairness was verified throughout entire supply chains? And what if consumer demands were met by providing them with sustainable products? FlowCert believes in fair global trade. Okay, FlowCert, I get that you were going for a compelling, thought-provoking introduction there, but it really just came off like my fifth grade recess monitor. What if you took turns on the seesaw? 
What if you let Brayden play second base and kickball for an inning even though he spends the whole game picking his nose? What if you stopped doing cherry bombs every single round in Foursquare because some people actually want to play the game and not wait ten minutes in line and get knocked out as Jack because they forgot the difference between cherry bomb and time bomb? Fair trade certification requirements include no forced or child labor, minimum wage standards, sustainable farming methods including no GMOs, and importantly, a floor price for the sale of fair trade products, as this robot explains. The minimum price is set based on a consultative process with fair trade farmers, workers and traders and guarantees that producer groups receive a price which covers what it costs them to grow their crop. When the market price is higher than the fair trade minimum price, the trader must pay the market price. As Siri's boyfriend described, there's basically a minimum price which importers of fair trade products must always pay for the product, regardless of current market value, which is intended to protect small farmers from market fluctuations and ensure they can afford minimum wage for their workers. If the price that results from the free market is higher than the price floor, importers pay the free market price. If it's lower, they would have to pay that minimum. And if you've ever taken an intro economics class, you know that the three main takeaways are don't skip the first half of the semester and then complain about bombing the midterm, Karl Marx looks like Leonardo DiCaprio in The Revenant, and price floors create problems. The market price is where demand equals supply, or where the amount consumers are willing to buy equals the amount producers are willing to make. If you impose a price floor, or an arbitrary price that's higher than the market price, it'll be more expensive, so less consumers will want to buy the product, but producers will want to make more of it, leading to a surplus. And this isn't like Thanksgiving dinner where extra is a good thing. A surplus means some producers sell their product and some don't, meaning a policy aiming to protect workers would actually put many out of business. Governments have done things to try to prevent surpluses from price floors in the past, from buying up the surplus themselves, to restricting how much of the product can be produced, to actually paying producers not to produce the product, all of which, of course, place a burden on taxpayers. Now, I know what you're thinking. Intro economics is theoretical and doesn't explain how things work in the real world. And that's true. Intro economics makes a lot of assumptions, like that markets are perfectly competitive and that people are rational, which we know is objectively false just by watching 30 seconds of Bravo. And while there is data to suggest that fair trade certifications have helped producers and skilled workers, there's also evidence that its benefits do not trickle down to the poorest, least skilled workers. After studying 1,500 people working in fair trade certified businesses in Uganda and Ethiopia, academics from the University of London have found otherwise. Many of the workers profiled fell short of earning decent wages and receiving little of the benefits it's meant to deliver. It's true. Fair trade's effectiveness has been extensively studied and the results have been mixed. A lot of this work has studied coffee growers, and it has found that benefits of fair trade largely accrue to the most skilled coffee producers, while low-skilled coffee growers, including migrant workers, don't see the same benefits. In other words, consumers are paying extra for a fair trade product for the guarantee that the workers who produced it are fairly treated, but they may not be getting what they bargained for. Officials from Fair Trade and its defenders argue that Fair Trade is a developing system working against the status quo in a world filled with labor and environmental exploitation. And that's true, but that's also part of the problem. 
Meeting what we might consider fair and ethical environmental and labor standards makes products more expensive, and those products' non-fair trade counterparts are either cheaper or similarly priced but higher quality. Consumers with more disposable income may be fine with spending a little extra for fair trade certified products, but most people are motivated largely by price and quality, especially when shopping on a budget. So like with organic certifications, fair trade certifications end up boxing people out. And of course, the goal is to make every product meet fair environmental and labor standards, not just the ones that the Instagram influencer who keeps popping up on your Discover page, even though you never followed her and have no interest in her latest vegan brunch buys. And these types of issues are not limited to fair trade and organic certifications. Issues persist across all certifications on the market, many of which are actually certifications created by companies to certify their own products, which is absolutely ridiculous. Certifications with relatively low standards can enter the market and masquerade as stricter programs, essentially forcing consumers to sift through products at the store thinking, What the f*** is going on? Although that reminds me, we've got some good news. The Sweaty Penguin is officially an AA six-star quadruple C L-Corp platinum positive energy flowing vibe podcast. So good for us, right? And then there's the question of whether these labels are actually doing anything to environmentally, economically, and ethically improve our global systems of production. And like the lenses of your sunglasses while you're wearing a mask, that answer really isn't clear. While the consumer demand for greener products has certainly increased options on the market, it also has increased greenwashing practices to the point where even experts can't tell how much change these certifications have catalyzed. If anything, certifications signal the market adapting to consumers' desire for more sustainable options, but failing to enact change in environmental and labor practices at any sort of large scale. With all these issues with certifications, should we ever trust them? Should we ever trust anything? Did Papa Smurf really let the other Smurfs run construction projects in the village to give them experience, or was he just too lazy to get off his ancient ass and do some handiwork? As bad as certifications may sound after that, that's absolutely not the takeaway here. Certifications are better than nothing, and in theory, they're actually a great idea, since they offer consumers a way to learn more about the environmental and labor practices behind the goods they're buying, and they help correct for another untrue intro economics assumption that people have full information about the products they purchase. But you can't always take them at their word, especially when their word is certified beer judge. So what can we as individuals do? Well, if you're looking to be a more ethical consumer, it's probably a good idea to look into what different certifications really mean. This may sound like a lot of work, but a quick Google search can usually tell you all you need to know. You can also think critically about the meanings of words on a label to get a sense of what's an actual certification and what isn't. There's a few tactics that marketers use in order to manipulate the consumer. They include not having proof, vagueness, irrelevance, lesser of two evils, fibbing, and worshiping false labels. So this means using words like eco-conscious, organic, natural, in a way that isn't backed up by facts. Terms like green and eco-conscious are Trash can terms, they don't actually mean anything because they are so broad. Like telling someone on Tinder, I'm not looking for anything specific, I just want to see where things go, words like green, eco-friendly, and even sustainable are so vague that they don't actually mean anything on a label. 
And it's especially confusing with the word organic because companies can put organic on their labels without being USDA organic certified. And since organic technically means derived from living matter, they're not lying. But they are giving a very pointless piece of information in an extremely misleading way. And just because something has a label on it that says 100% supernatural sustainable good stuff doesn't mean it actually is any of those things, especially if it seems unusually inexpensive. That's not to say inexpensive automatically means bad, because many environmentally and socially responsible practices are cost-saving, but as we've discussed in episodes such as fast fashion, it's more often that the economic benefits of environmental and ethical practices show up in the economy at large and benefit the consumer long-term, but may make individual price tags a little pricier. While these are good ways for consumers to use certifications as they currently exist, our institutions should also be looking for ways to improve certification schemes or finding alternative ways to help improve production standards. In some cases, such as the European Union, governments have increased regulation and oversight for certain certifications to ensure that the standards and enforcement are evenly applied and act as a reliable metric for consumer judgment. The EU hopes to make life easier for organic farmers. It also hopes to increase consumer confidence by strengthening the control system and introducing new checks on retailers. New rules also aim at ensuring fairer competition between EU products and imports. They enlarge the scope of organic rules to cover a wider list of products, such as salt and palm hearts, and provide a more uniform approach on pesticides. And thanks to a new system of group certification, small farmers willing to switch to organic farming will no longer face the red tape and costs they faced in the past. And that sounds really exciting. Although I must say, it's interesting that their go-to example was palm hearts. I actually didn't know what palm hearts were, but according to Wikipedia, they're similar to artichokes, which leads me to believe that there can't possibly be a large market for them because artichokes are terrible. Seriously, you know a food is bad when the main way people eat it is to cut it up really small and then dilute the flavor by mixing it with spinach. Of course, it'll take a bit of time to know if this program is successful, and the EU knows very well that it involves coordinating a lot of legislative priorities and a lot of stakeholders, but perhaps getting the buy-in from everyone will pave the way for a major positive impact. The government could also play a more active role in informing consumers about certifications as well, potentially by disseminating information about how to evaluate certifications or by debunking some of the misinformation. The government could also consider creating monetary incentives for products with verified certifications, or go even further and create its own regulations for certification programs, kind of like a certification for certifications, or a certification inception. Although if they do that, one could argue that we'd need a third party to certify the government certifications to make sure those are reliable, and then we'd need a certification to certify those, and soon enough we're in certification limbo, we don't know how we got here, we're covered in old man makeup, we've got some weird top in our pocket that won't stop spinning, and we're so dazed that the only possible escape is to let ourselves get hit by a train and see what the hell happens. Of course, it's true that certifying certifications could be expensive, time-consuming, and confusing, but then again, so was the movie Inception, and that was fully worth it. Certifiers themselves can also make improvements. FlowCert could likely make their fair trade criteria a little more sophisticated, since price floors seem to be a poor way to ensure fair wages and practices. 
The USDA could find ways to cut costs for farmers to get organic certified and recertified, and be sure their list of pesticides and fertilizers prioritizes toxicity to humans and the environment over whether it came from a lab or a natural source. And any certification could consider putting more explanation on their labels, since even though all their information is available on their websites, people might not want to whip out their phones in the grocery store to look them up, and ultimately, convenience is really the whole purpose of certifications. And look, when we're talking about improvements to certifications, we're really talking about how to provide consumers information and responsible producers a competitive advantage. Ultimately, the goal would be to make certifications pointless by producing every product in the world with high environmental and ethical standards at affordable prices, which is of course a tall task, and the Sweaty Penguin has and will continue putting out episodes on how to do that for different products. But until the world is all rainbows, unicorns, and two-ply toilet paper, certifications are a good start. And if we can make them more nuanced and transparent in their standards, more accessible for producers, and more understandable to consumers, we could see a better environment, fairer labor conditions, and people trying to purchase responsibly won't be looking at the labels of every product in the store and asking, What the f*** is going on? Are you sick of boring election nights where you vote and then find out the winner just a few hours later? Then Arizona, Georgia, Nevada, North Carolina, and Pennsylvania are for you. With Arizona, Georgia, Nevada, North Carolina, and Pennsylvania, you'll be in for a roller coaster of emotions as you watch the news, Twitter, and every random political blog all week pretending to remember anything from your one intro statistics class as you try to decipher who you think will win. And if you sign up now, we'll throw in a free Senate race where you won't even know the outcome until January. Talk about a thriller! Arizona, Georgia, Nevada, North Carolina, and Pennsylvania, the perfect distraction from the special Bachelorette episode. Welcome back to The Sweaty Penguin. With me today is Dr. Graham Ald, a professor in the School of Public Policy and Administration at Carleton University and the author of Constructing Private Governance, The Rise and Evolution of Forest Coffee and Fishery Certification. Dr. Ald, welcome to the show. Thank you. Great to be here. So you talk about certification programs like organic and fair trade as global governance tools, which I found interesting because organic and fair trade is coming from independent organizations. So why do you see these certifications as a governance tool? The nation state obviously is the key governance arrangement structure that we have had in place for centuries. But in the last several decades, there have been certain types of problems that arise in a transnational context that states have sometimes struggled to, to handle. So environmental and social problems in global supply chains, deforestation, things that transcend national borders and their impacts have spurred a bunch of different you know, experiments to try and deal with these and experiments in sort of the loose sense of the term, the, like an intervention uh, to try something new. So the certification labeling programs have been conceptualized as governance because they, they look like governments in some ways in that they set rules that look regulatory. They have substantive requirements that say you can do this, you can't do that. But the, the key difference is that they don't rely on the kind of classic government sanctions, right? That we always think of governments as having the power to use coercive force, and that involves uh, jail time, sanctions, other forms of public authority that, you know, if you, if someone does something wrong against the law, they might get fined, they might end up in jail, etc. So these 
private forms of governments don't rely on that form of authority or that source of sanction. They rely on other mechanisms to try and convince people to adhere to the rules. And those have involved things like corporate naming and shaming campaigns, consumer awareness and purchasing by you and me when we go to a coffee shop, social pressure from peers, other companies trying to leverage their buying relationships to change behavior, and a host of other softer forms of of coercion. And of course, that's all reliant on the certification program being big enough and successful enough where they have enough influence to actually change behaviors. And we see when we talk about a certification program being a success or a failure, first off, I just want to ask this maybe a little self-explanatory, but what does success look like for one of these programs and why are some successful and some not? It is actually a great question. It's one of the sort of major concerns one might have about a voluntary system of any form. The problem with that on a voluntary basis means that the types of companies, the types of farmers, the types of operators in general that are likely going to participate in such a program are already likely going to be performing pretty close to what the standard requires. Um, So you have this sort of sorting problem where the high performers opt in and the ones that aren't performing very well are far from reaching the standard, so they, for various reasons, don't participate. So this question of success is is inherently challenging in that you can't just measure it on the basis of the numbers of operators that are participating or the penetration in the market in the sense of like how many operators are certified of all the possible operators. Um, And there's also the kind of classic challenge of getting consistent performance in any kind of auditing arrangement. Think of it as a classic problem of regulating complex issues. Governments often have trouble getting their citizens to do what they, <laughs> what the rules say they ought to do. And private systems are no different, right? They try to do that through independent third-party audit systems, but those are not perfect. It will be inevitable almost that you will find some news story that says, well, there was a case of fraud or there was a problem with this audit. I mean, I think that at the heart of this, there is this question of what these are trying to do. If they are just a mechanism to give some consumers that are concerned about their environmental or social footprint the feeling that they can consume with a sense of ethical ease. That's one thing. And I think some programs might have more of that in mind. But if that's really the limit of what they're trying to do, then the probably the penetration to your original question about how much impact they're going to have, the impact is probably going to be pretty small on the grounds that most research shows that consumers are fickle. They say that they like to consume something that is ethical, but when it comes to actually doing that at the purchasing point, the sort of raw economic trade-off is much more apparent, and they're not necessarily going to pay as much as they say they would pay. So the kind of extent to which premiums from consumers really do drive these things are limited. But if you also thought about it from the perspective of how do we inform consumers about their ethical and environmental footprints, like aside from whether this is helping drive changes in the supply chains, 
there are various different models. So different programs have made different choices about how to communicate their environmental performance. So some of them are just a simple label. It just says you're buying organic, right? And you're supposed to understand what that means. Others try to communicate much more complex information about the performance of the product. Say an energy efficiency standard like Energy Star has more information about the extent to which this product performs better than other products on the question of energy efficiency. There are some cases where you see benefits accruing to in the form of economic or social benefits for the participating farmers and ecological benefits for the, the resources that are trying to be protected. Uh, but there's also you know, problems. They're, they're, they're not perfect successes. We also see some sectors having tons of certification programs and certified products and others not using them so much as you talk about in the book. And I'm wondering why are they more popular in some sectors than other? And would that necessarily equate to them being more effective in some sectors than others? Or are they two different things? First, there is just the question of the service that certification and these forms of verification labeling programs are serving in the market. So say there are certain types of companies that in their mind are performing at a higher level than their competitors, they might want to find some mechanism to credibly signal that to their consumers. So that's often what companies do. They come up with systems to communicate with their consumers that say, this is our value proposition and buy into it. But in the case of something like an ethical claim or an environmental stewardship claim, sometimes it's very helpful for these companies to have a third party do that for them. And if there is sufficient demand, so there's enough consumers that are going to a coffee shop and saying, you know, what is the ethical profile of this coffee you're selling me? That there is a demand for that signaling. But you can also think about it from the perspective of the companies. Sometimes companies have incentives to develop their own programs because they don't like what another program is requiring that they do. A lot of people don't actually know what labels like organic and fair trade actually mean or how big of a difference they make. So is it enough to actually correct market failures for a consumer to just have a vague idea that certification equals good or does it require some sort of educational or PR push or even a market mechanism through policy to actually incentivize certified products? Yeah, it's a good question. So there, it opens up the question of how governments think about these and how governments interact with them or influence them or regulate them. One of the things the EU has done more so than other jurisdictions is that they have intervened and regulated private certification programs in different ways. So in the biofuels context, they have essentially set up a process by which they determine legitimate or publicly authorized certifiers for sustainable biofuels. So they're essentially creating a, like a separate accreditation process, you could think of it like accrediting hospitals or accrediting um, universities in a particular program and saying, these have met our standards and we're going to let them certify biofuels that come into the EU market that are aligned with our biofuels directive. So that's one way in which states can intervene. They can let the private certification still operate, but they can create some kind of threshold and say, if you meet these criteria, we're going to let you operate. If you don't, you're not going to be able to operate in our market. 
a lot of companies have also gotten away with kind of making up their own internal certifications or even feigning certifications by putting labels like organically grown instead of organic. So what do you make of that? Is it the responsibility of the consumer to parse these things out or do policymakers need to crack down on this in some way? Well, I think uh, the general adage buyer beware is, uh, is a, always a useful <laughs> adage to have in the context of of markets and in the context of claims by companies around their sustainable performance. That's not to say that there aren't companies that haven't done things that are quite innovative and forward looking in terms of their approach to trying to really address environmental stewardship within their supply chains. And the ones that have gone the furthest on that front usually do try to develop some kind of third party oversight. And I think that the reason why scholars of governance and political scientists and social scientists in general were really interested in certification early on was that it wasn't just about, it wasn't just a sort of functional instrument that was meant to try and address problems. There was certainly that component and that remains a really key issue, but there was also this question of like how we come to decision aspects of consultation participation transparency those things that we care about from a normative perspective certain programs have taken that on historically much more and that's something where corporate led programs are inevitably going to have a little bit harder time saying that we've really given up decision making control like we're not in the driver's seat here so that, that's another dimension of these initiatives that's important to keep in mind. What do you see as the future of certification programs? What do you hope to see continue and what do you hope to see improve? Gosh, it's a good question. Um, I mean, I, I think the part of me that cares about the problems of the world wants to recognize that if this instrument doesn't prove to help us in the long run, we should try something else. We don't want to continue doing something that isn't working. So this question of how we understand whether these things are having improvements and making improvements and the various ways in which they might be, that's an important thing to keep in mind. But I also wouldn't want us to throw them out without thinking carefully about what the alternatives are in that they arose at a particular time when there were problems that weren't being addressed in certain contexts. And so they, there was a need in some respect constructed or perceived and if we're going to be critical of this instrument, we also have to think carefully about, well, what are the alternative models? How do we address these problems in other ways? And what concrete steps can be taken to address these problems through these other ways? And lots of people are thinking about those questions, but I think that's an important thing to keep in mind when we think critically about certification as a governance instrument. Dr. All, thank you so much for joining us. You're welcome. It was a pleasure. This wraps up episode 24 of The Sweaty Penguin. If you haven't already, don't forget to subscribe. And if you're a fan of the show, please tell a friend about it or leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts so more people find the show. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next week. This episode was written by Caroline Kale, edited by Frank Hernandez, and produced by Ethan Brown, Shannon Damiano, Frank Hernandez, and Caroline Kale. Our ads were voiced by Shannon Damiano, and our music was composed by Brett Saka.
Special thanks to the Boston University Build Lab. For bonus content, follow us on Facebook at Sweaty Penguin News, Twitter at Sweats Penguin Pod, or Instagram at Sweaty Penguin Pod.